It was hot, extremely hot. It was dry, it hadn't rained in nearly a month. Water was scarce. Even the brook, the bottom of the valley of Elah, where it seemed everyone who was anyone had gathered was nearly dried up. But it wasn't the heat that was causing everyone on this side of the valley to sweat. It was him. Over nine feet, over nine feet of brute and brawn. His name, Goliath, or better known, the champion. See, nicknames aren't given, they're earned. And Goliath had more than earned his nickname. Success after success after success. He indeed was the champion from Gath. So as you can guess, no one would fight him. That is until just a few moments ago. Rumors started to spread among the ranks of Israel that there was a young shepherd boy who had volunteered to offer himself as a sacrifice, to offer himself as the one who would fight the giant, the champion from Gath. So I guess it was true, but could he do it? I mean, he was just a young shepherd boy. No one in Sodom and no one in Vegas was betting on him. So Saul did what any good and sane king would do. He gave David all the help he could possibly give. Heaven knows David needed it. So he dressed David in his, in the king's armor, in the king, with the king's sword, with the king's shield, with the king's helmet. But interestingly enough, and to the surprise of everyone, David refused the king's help. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. I'm not used to them. At no point in his past had David ever entered a battle, had David ever entered and faced his enemies as Saul. He'd always gone as David. And now as he faced this giant, David knew, and it's interesting, as he faced the end, surely this would be his end. Things became crystal clear for him. He would go as he had always gone. Not as Saul, he would go as David, as a shepherd boy with his sling and his staff in hand, and more importantly, with his faith firmly set in the God who had always and would now not only go with him, but go before him to fight his battles for him. So he took him off and he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream and put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. And with his sling in his hand, he approached the champion, the Philistine. Hey, I wanna welcome you to Mount Olive Church and I wanna welcome you to our series on not 1 Samuel, actually a series we've been going through on 1 Peter, though that story, that amazing against all odds kind of story, the story of David and Goliath is from 1 Samuel. But we've been going through a series on 1 Peter, but what's interesting in the story of David and Goliath is that as David met what could have been his end, 
things became crystal clear to him. And what's interesting is the end has a way, doesn't it, of bringing things to clarity for us. And some of you, and I know some of your stories, and some of you I don't know your stories, but some of you have had a near-death experience and it shook you, but it did more than just shake you. It changed you, didn't it? Or maybe you had a death scare, you know, you were almost, you were in an accident and it could have been worse. You had a doctor's note and, and then it turned out it wasn't true, but it shook you, but it also changed you. And in that moment when you kind of faced the end, your end, things started to come into view, into clear view for you, didn't they? And suddenly you looked at your life and you're like, I've been living in some directions that I don't know if it's worth living in that direction. Well, the end has a way of bringing clarity. There's some ways that I've been living that I don't know if I want my life to, to leave that kind of legacy. What's most important? And you made some changes. Now, here's the thing. This is true also of our faith. And in our faith, as we go about life, we can take some really interesting side trails along the faith journey. And as Peter writes his letter, as we've been going through First Peter, as he writes his letter, he says, oh, by the way, the end is near. And this brings about clarity. And he's gonna talk about some things, some general things that if you're a follower of Jesus, this is true for every follower of Jesus. And then at the end, he's gonna talk about one specific thing. And it has to do with the story of David and Goliath that's unique and specific to you, that you can't go out as Saul or as someone other than who you are with your faith in hand. So as we've been going through this series, you know that we've uh, subtitled the series Steadfast, and this comes out of uh, Peter's reason for writing this letter. He wrote this to Christians. If you're not a Christian, that's okay. You're on your journey. But he writes this to followers of Jesus, and at the end of the letter, in chapter 5, verse 12, he says, oh, by the way, this is the true grace of God, which means if you're not a follower of Jesus, you should read 1 Peter. Because if you've ever wondered, what is the true grace of God? Peter's like, I just told you. So it's a beautiful letter for that. But as he's writing to Christians, he says, this is the true grace of God. Now stand fast, remain steadfast in it. And we've looked at all kinds of ways that Peter says, here's what it looks like to stand fast, to remain steadfast in the true grace of God. But now he speaks about it as it relates to the end. And the truth is, the end is near. Here's how Peter says it. If you have your Bibles, go to 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 7, he says this, the end of all things is near. And he doesn't write this to kind of scare everyone like, the end is near. <laughs> the reality is, the end is always near. We don't actually know when the end will be. We, we don't know when the end will be. We don't know when our end will be, right? We don't know if we have like another day, another 50 years. We don't know if the end is a day away or 50 years away. See, when, when Peter says the end of all things is near, he's talking about not just our end, but the end of everything. And when he says it's near, he's not saying it's near in reference to time elapsed. He's actually talking about the sequence of events. Other writers in, in the New Testament talk about the last days, that we're in the last days. It sounds kind of like, kind of freaky, right? What, what do you mean we're in the last days? What they mean is not in sequence of time, literal days. What they mean is in the sequence of events. What Peter means is Jesus has come. The long-awaited Messiah has showed up. 
And not only did he show up, he died on the cross for our sins and then God raised him back to life. And then God ascended Jesus to the right hand of the Father and Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God to live with those who believe, it inaugurated what the the writers of scripture say are the last days or we might call the age of the church. And what that means is in the sequence of things, these epic moments where God does these epic things, the next epic thing to happen is Jesus's return, which signals the end of all things. So we are in the last days. We've been for about 2000 years. Turns out there's a lot of last days and we don't actually know how many more last days there's gonna be. We might have another three or four. There may be another hundred or thousands of years of last days. But what we know is that the next epic thing that God is gonna do is the return of Jesus, which means the end of all things in the sequence of events is near. And and the ending, endings bring clarity. So as Peter says, here's the reality. Let me bring into clear view what's most important for you as followers of Jesus. And he talks about three general things and one specific that's unique for all of us. He says this, therefore, because <laughs> the end of all things, uh, all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Now, if you've been following us in this series, if you've been uh, attending, you know, these two words sound familiar, right? These two concepts sound familiar because Peter used these exact same words in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, where he says, you need to be alert, and you need to be of sober mind. But then he, in that, uh, at that time, he used it in a different context. He says, so that you can live a holy life, a godly life, a set apart, Jesus kind of life. You need to be alert and sober minded. Now he says, in view of the end, you need to be alert and sober minded, which means don't, don't get sidetracked with all the side trails of faith and life. Be alert, be sober minded. Why? So that you can have a connection to God so that you can pray. This is, what, this is what David did as he faced the end. He said, I'm gonna go out as me with my faith in God. Nothing's gonna change. I'm not getting sidetracked by the end of all things or the end of my life. I will go the way I have always gone with a connection to God. This is most important as you face the end. He goes on, that's general kind of command number one. He goes on and says, now that your connection with God is in place. He says there, this, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Above all, once your relationship with God is in place, the most important, he gets to the very essence of the Christian life of what discipleship is and he uses the word love. And you know why he does? Because on the night that his Messiah, that his savior was betrayed, and Peter remembered this with absolute clarity. Jesus, his Messiah had washed his feet. and said, I want you to do that for others. And Jesus, his Messiah had stood before the disciples and said, you are gonna be defined. My followers are gonna have a distinguishing mark. And you know what their mark is gonna be? Love. The world will know you are my disciples by your love. And we can get sidetracked with faith and these things and these things. And when you come to the end and things become clear, Peter says the one thing, the thing that is above everything else is you need to learn to love. 
and love each other deeply. And when he used the word love, it's not like feel some things for people. He uses the word agape love, which is this self-giving, other-centered, sacrificial love, the love that his savior and our savior Jesus had for us. And he says, you need to love each other deeply because this is the absolute greatest ethic of the Christian life. And then Peter does something interesting. He says, oh, and by the way, there's this cool benefit that comes as you love one another. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, how does love cover over sin? Now, Peter doesn't tell us, but I think in at least two ways, at least two ways love covers over sins. First of all, love covers over sins in the sense that the minor things in life, it keeps them from becoming major. And I know you've experienced some minor things in life that are like, oh, you're so annoying. <laughs> oh, you're just really difficult right now. Oh, you kind of, I have this grievance. I, I kind of just struggling with you. That's kind of minor, but isn't it true that a lot of times the minor things just kind of grow into major things because we're just so annoyed. And Peter says, if you learn to love with an other-centric, self-sacrificing love, the little things don't become big. You learn to bear up under the weight of other people's grievances and annoyances. You learn to bear up under that. Love covers over those minor things. But let's be honest, in life and within the church, and you know this, some things are major and some people have done some huge sin and wrong and injustices against you. How does love cover over those sins? Well, as it relates to the major things, love covers over sins because the major things are forgiven and thus are covered over through forgiveness. When you love with an others-centric, self-giving love, when someone wrongs you, you give them what you wish others would give you when you wrong them. But that's hard. That's others-focused. That's not self-focused. You give them mercy because when you've wronged someone, you wish you would get mercy from them. And love covers over a multitude of sins, even major ones, when we choose the path of love, which leads us to forgive others. So he says, above all, because it's the most important ethic in the Christian life. Jesus said this would be the distinguishing mark of his followers, love and love each other deeply. And when you love this kind of way, a multitude of sins will be covered over. So we have two, pray, your relationship with God needs to be right, your relationship with others needs to be right. And then number three, there's a general command for all Christians. I don't know why he includes this. We don't even talk about this very much in Western Christianity today, but he does. In Peter's estimation, this is, like, this is like core, this is important. He says this, and offer hospitality to one another. Never mind that last part, because you know, we all grumble when we offer hospitality, right? Really, do we have to have them over? Come on, honey, can we just not, right? Hospitality in Greek, this is actually two words kind of combined. It's love friendship combined with the word stranger. That's what it actually means to love the stranger, to have a friendship kind of love to people you don't know, people you can't pay you back. In our Western culture, we think of hospitality as, as, as having people over, especially friends, and it includes that, but it includes people who maybe aren't 
your friends. Interestingly enough, if you look at church history, hospitality is one of the earmarks, the most important things the early church did. This is how, when, when Peter says, love one another deeply, they're like, how do we love practically? We should just love the stranger. We should have people in our homes. We should care for people's needs. This set, this set, the, church, this set, this set the church on the radar for the Roman Empire. And so Peter, as he says, the end of all things is near and the sequence of things, the next massive thing that God's gonna do is his return, which inaugurates the end, the judgment. So here's how you should live. Be sober-minded and alert. Don't get sidetracked. You need to have your, your faith set on God so you can pray. And love one another. It's the greatest ethic. And do this as you offer hospitality. It doesn't matter if you're black or white. It doesn't matter your culture. It doesn't matter your age. These are true for every follower of Jesus. But then Peter does something interesting. He gets specific. And he gets unique to every one of us. Something that each of us needs to wrestle to the ground for us, not for others. He says this, and each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Each of you should use whatever gift, let's read this together, you have received. You know what Peter does? He assumes something. He makes an assumption that we don't often agree with him on. Peter assumes that if you're a follower of Jesus, you are gifted. He just assumes you, each of us, you have all received a gift. If you're a follower of Jesus, God's spirit has entered you and you have been given a gift, a unique gift that's unique to you. It's yours. And this is something we don't often agree with because some of us, me included, often have this mentality of God that as God was kind of passing out gifts to different people within the church, he kind of passed over me. It's like, whoa, I'm here, right? And we look at others and we're like, wow, they're so gifted. I don't think I have a gift. And do you know what Peter says? You have a gift. In fact, this is so important. I want you to look at the person beside you, even if you don't know them, and just simply say, by the way, you are gifted. Tell the person beside you right now, you have a gift. And then tell them, oh, by the way, you're unique. <laughs> and then when they're about to be offended, say, no, you're unique. You have a unique gift, okay? This gift you've been given is unique to you. You have a gift. God has put something in you that only in your sphere of influence, in the path and the place that you live, only you can use. It's unique to you. So he says, each of you, and he assumes you all have gifts. Each of you should say this together. Whatever gift you have received to say it together as faithful stewards of God's grace in his various forms. <laughs> so Peter says, oh, by the way, you've been gifted. Now don't squander the thing you've been given. See, a lot of times we don't use our gift for I think at least two reasons. One is we don't think we're gifted and we have to get over that hurdle and Peter already has. He's just assumed you are gifted. But the second hurdle is sometimes we just don't have the courage. It's scary to use your gift. 
And sometimes we don't have the courage. And Peter says, no, no, no. As you get to the end and you realize, whoa, whoa, this is coming sooner than I think. And everything starts to become clear. He says, you've been given something that's unique and special for you. You should use it. God has not only given it to you, his spirit is inside of you to empower you. If you will but use it. This is what David did as he faced Goliath. He said, God has given me something that's unique to me. I don't need to enter the battle as Saul. I need to enter the battle as David. I'm a shepherd. And God will use what he has given me to fight the giants because it's him who's going to win the battle. And so he says, use And don't use it for you because this is often what we see in the church. We see this in society. We have gifts and then we use it to build a platform for ourselves. He says, no, no, you've been given a gift, but the gift isn't about you. The gift is about serving others. And as you do, you are a faithful steward of God's grace in its various forms. And then Peter does something interesting. He lists two gifts that are on opposite ends of the spectrum. <laughs> he says this, if, any of, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. And if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. Notice this is not about building a platform. This is not about, hey, everyone, look at me, look at my gift. This is about, hey, I've been given a gift to speak. I guess I'm speaking the words of God because it's about serving others and it's about God's glory. Oh, I've been given the gift to serve. I'm gonna use God's strength, the strength he provides to serve others. But notice what he does with these two gifts. One is extremely public and the other is actually quite private. When you find and and, and come across someone who has the gift of speaking, everybody knows, right? They often, with that gift, often comes a platform, And people get to see this gift. It's a very public gift. We're serving, often that's behind the scenes. And people don't see that gift. But Peter says, actually equally are, both are equally important. Don't put one above the other. Because if you've been given this gift, yeah, you have a platform, but you use, you only speak the words of God. And if you've been given this gift, you use the strength God provides because it's about others, but it's also about something else. And he says that next. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. See gifts, gifts have been given and gifts are anything God has given you that you can use to serve others and to bring glory to God. That's what gifts are. And it's interesting, Peter only lists two gifts. And in scripture, we have different places where where gift lists are given. What's interesting about all the the different places, you can find two in in 1 Corinthians, one in Ephesians, one in Romans, and then this one in, in, uh, in 1 Peter. None of the lists are the exact same. There's differences, meaning none of the lists are exhaustive. It's not like they sat down and said, what is every gift we could possibly imagine? But simply, a gift is anything, anything God has given you. And then the purpose of the gift is for the service of others. Because if you're going to use your gift as an others-focused, others-centric kind of love, it will be about others and will be to glorify God. But as it relates to this whole area of gifts, there's a couple pitfalls 
There's some dark side to this area of gifts and there's some traps. And I wanna list two traps as it relates to gifts that you and I as followers of Jesus don't fall into. One of the traps as it relates to gifts is this idea of gift envy. Now, you know what envy is, right? It's like wanting something that someone else has. And we get envy as it relates to stuff, right? It's like, man, they got a nice car. I wish I had that. Or, oh man, they have a great marriage. I wish I had, oh man, they have, you know, a lot more money or they have that job I want and we envy people's stuff. But do you know you can also envy people's gifts? And maybe you struggled with gift envy. Sometimes it's because we don't think we have a gift. And we're like, man, I just wish I had that gift. Sometimes we actually envy people who have our gift, but we think they have it in a larger amount. And we wish we were as gifted at that as they are. Sometimes we get, have gift envy because we uh, see gift as a platform, right? And we see people with platform gifts, with gifts that everyone gets to see. And we think, man, I just wish I had that gift. And we, we minimize some and we elevate others. And we start to envy others' gifts. And I think, I think it's because we have an, a wrong understanding of gifts. And we actually understood gifts are not about us getting a platform. Gifts are about serving others and the glory of God. And I think if we came to fully understand that every gift is given by God for the service of others and the glory of him, we may struggle for this, with this one a little less. We may fall into this trap less often. What are some gifts that you tend to envy? And you need to rethink what gifts are and what they're for. The second trap that I think many of us fall into is like a, a first cousin to gift envy. It's called gift projection. And gift projection is when we have a gift and we elevate our gift above other gifts. And this happens often when we're unaware, sometimes unintentionally, and we're not even aware, uh, we don't even know it. It often works like this, someone with the gift of speaking is so passionate about good speaking that they just kind of gift project on everyone, say, you just need to be a good speaker. In fact, to be a follower of Jesus, a good follower of Jesus, you should be a good speaker. Someone with the gift of mercy who just loves to step in and help people, and they're so passionate about caring for the needs of others, they could just kind of gift project their gift and say, well, everyone, I mean, if you're a good Christian, shouldn't you just be concerned about others all the time and have the gift of mercy? That's why. And then look at what Jesus did. And someone who has the gift of, of truth and justice and theology would say, everyone should think like I do and just be concerned about right theology and project that on others. And someone who has the gift of speaking in tongues, whether miraculous or healing, may gift project and say, well, if you're a real Christian, you'd have faith and be able to do what I do. See how easily we can gift project? And often it's done unintentionally. It's just we're so, God has gifted us. We're maybe good at something and we're filled with passion for it. And of course we read scripture and it shows up in scripture because all the gifts show up in scripture. We think everyone should do as I do. And yet that's not the body of Christ because every gift is unique to you, for you, for the purpose God has given you to build his kingdom in this world, which is it's about others, the glory of God. See, gifts are anything God has given you. 
that you could use to serve others and glorify him. So Peter, as he gets to the end, literally, he says, the end of all things is near. What's most important? He says, generally speaking, for all Christians, you need to make sure you're right with God. Be of sober mind and be alert so you can pray. Don't get sidetracked with all the side trails of life and faith. And as you follow Jesus, be a person who's defined. Your distinguishing mark is your love. It covers over a multitude of sins. <laughs> and offer hospitality. Don't do it with grumbling or complaining. And then what's specific to you, so you've been gifted, it's unique to you. Use your gift for the glory of God, the good of others. If we could summarize it, I'd say this. Live your entire life as it comes into clear view because of the end. Live for the good of others, always other-centric and for the glory of God. God has gifted you. As David met the giant, probably it was gonna be his end. That's what everybody thought. He realized a few things. I'm David, I'm not Saul. God's gifted me uniquely, but that doesn't mean I get to run ahead with my gift. I desperately need my father and I'm gonna live for him, for his glory and his name. So as you journey, what would it look like out of the three general commands, maybe which one is the area that you're like, ooh, I need some work on that. And the specific one, do you know your gift? What would it take for you to step out? Whatever, whatever giant you face, to step out with your gift and your faith in God in hand and step into the battle. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you for uh, today. Thank you for your word. And it challenges us and encourages us. It lifts us up and it kind of pushes us a little further sometimes than Maybe we're willing to go. And maybe, maybe the first verse caught some of us today. The end of all things is near. We've just kind of been living life without even thinking about that. And I pray that that concept, Father, would bring into clarity our lives. And maybe there's some today that have never put their faith in Jesus. And it's like, am I ready for the end? Father, may they consider your son, Jesus, and put their faith in him. And for those of us who are your followers, Father, Peter's made it so clear and so simple what it looks like to be laser focused on the things that are most important. Father, I believe your spirit's here and you've spoken to each one of us and something's sticking out that you're gonna wanna work on each one of us individually. May we have ears to hear and then the courage to respond. I pray this in your name, Jesus, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We trust you have been encouraged and challenged in your faith journey. If you're desiring prayer, want more information on our church, want to partner with us or be involved in any way, please go to our website at mountoliveefc.com. We'll see you next time.